Okay, so in this episode, I am excited and delighted to have local Los Angeles artist R&B soul uh, Cliff Beach Music. Cliff is a singer-songwriter, keyboardist originally from the DMV area. His albums include The Gospel According to Cliff Beach in 2017, Six Pack EP in 2012, Stripped Down and Unplugged in 2014, and most recently Live at NAMM in 2019. Uh, Cliff also was a winner of two Global Music Awards and owner of the label California Soul Music. Is that correct, Cliff? That is correct. All right, so let me start by saying that I've been spending a little bit of time with your music, and um, I appreciate the musicality and versatility in the music and also the um, spiritual presence. Thank you. Okay, so um, let me go ahead and just get started. Um, one moment, please. So tell me about your early introduction into music and did you grow up in the church? Um, and also what was your first instrument you experimented with? Nice, uh, yeah. So I started taking piano lessons around five, six years old. Uh, my mom felt that that God wanted me to, to learn instruments. I tell people all the time, I come from an extended family of, of singers. Um, my extended family started a church called the Church of God and Saints of Christ. My great-great-grandfather was a bishop in that church. And so they actually didn't believe in any musical instruments. So no one plays an instrument in that side of the family, but they're all really good singers with really good ears, um, singing traditional gospel music. Uh, but then, yeah, growing up, I, I played and sang in church. And then uh, I also sang in choirs within school. Um, from elementary school all the way through high school. And then uh, I really started to really get deep into music when I was figuring out where I was going to go to college. I graduated early from high school in the DMV in Maryland uh, at 16 and went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, uh, home of Quincy Jones and John Mayer and tons of people. And so um, from 16 to 19, I went to conservatory. And so it was like this crazy incubator of um, you know, growing up, my, my, my parents, they outlawed or banned secular music. And so it was like a whole new world opened up to me the same way. It's like when you see the Wizard of Oz in the beginning, it's all black and white. And then she goes to the, the, the new Oz and everything turns into color. That's how it felt for me in college, being introduced to like tons of diverse people, but also diverse music styles and, uh, and then really coming to love funk soul, R&B, vintage music that, I mean, you know, I would hear it in passing like through other car radios or at friends' houses and stuff like that, but never, never the deep dive I had until I went to Boston. That sounds great. Yeah, I know there's a good conservatory in Maryland, Peabody uh, mm -hmm. Institute that a lot of people went to. So, but Berkeley is definitely, you know, a great school. So um, after listening to some of your songs, I hear obvious influences, and similarities. I hear some Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, Donny Hathaway, of course, Prince, Van Hunt. I'm a big Van, Van Hunt fan, D'Angelo, Raphael Sadiq, and, and, and some Terrence Trent Darby. I'm a big Terrence Trent Darby fan. So uh, do you consciously draw from certain um, artists or various, various artists, or you just kind of go, go along with the flow of whatever is influencing you at the, at the time or however you feel at the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much influenced by Stevie and Sly Stone and, 
you know, a lot of the keyboard players, Patrice Russian. I mean, I love all that kind of stuff. All the James Brown, I'm a huge influence on me, obviously. And then, of course, he influenced Michael Jackson and Prince, who are also really big influences of mine, too. But I mean, I love I love everything. I love, you know, early jazz into the blues into you know gospel music i mean i grew up with a ton of gospel choir music so like kirk franklin and everyone everyone from that time and even before like you get into like the james cleveland and aretha franklin's gospel album stuff like that i mean it's it's a lot of great emma Halley jackson a lot of great call and response and and i and i took a lot of those elements into my music when i was doing the gospel according to cliff beach album in 2017 i went back to my roots in Maryland, in Baltimore, in a church, recording uh, drums and bass because I wanted to get that that church vibe of of people looking at you and just saying like I, I got you, I got you, like I'm gonna follow wherever you're gonna go, and it's, it was super organic. And and the people that were recording that were were like top notch gospel musicians and and top notch gospel songwriters. The the guy who helped produce that part of the recording, Darian Dennis, was an ASCAP gospel songwriter winner um and so uh i just felt like it was coming home and then we came back to la and we layered a bunch of stuff and that was probably my biggest project to date because i think i had almost 30 personnel on that album and and for an indie album that's a lot because i had like a string quartet i pulled like a a vocal quartet out of compton that that sang on the album and just we were kind of like slowly just adding kind of like a stone soup like it was like okay one person had carrots and one person had onions and one person had mushrooms and eventually like we made this big stew but it was like everybody even though it's a solo project under my name with mm. beach it is really takes teamwork to make that dream work i could never have done it and I had you know multiple producers and engineers and other people it just it was a beast and it took me I probably started I started thinking about making the album in 2012 and then I started really working on the album in 2015 but I didn't finish it and get it actually out until 2017 so all of those things take they take time and they take energy but it's a labor of love I mean I still feel and even like putting all the artwork together that was that was a, a beast of if you look at the artwork, you'll see the front is a stained glass window and the back looks like the Ten Commandments. And then on mm. the CD, you open it up and it looks like an old like printing press Gutenberg Bible from the, I don't know, 17, 1600s. And so we just want it took time because that wasn't my first album. That was my third, but first full length. So I had the stripped down one. And before that, I had the 2013 Who the Funk is Club Beach. So originally I had a band I came out to LA in 2003 and I had a band from that time through I think 2007 called the Moon Crickets and I was oh. like more of a, a funk rock type of thing mm. and so like Lenny Kravitz meets Red Hot Chili Peppers so we we would do like outdoor stage like a Universal City Walk and be jumping up and down and doing the splits and stuff like that and so then I took cool. some time off from music in 2010 I started rebuilding like a solo well I had done some solo stuff on my own in between them but then in 2010 I started forming a band around my solo stuff and playing out again. And I had some songs that I have been doing the last couple of years. And then, so by the time we got to 2013, it was the time where I was like, you gotta, uh, I was working with a producer, my friend, Mr. Rocks, who has a studio 5A in DTLA. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he focuses on hip hop and he's worked with, uh, with Pigeon John and, and he was on tour with, um, 
a bunch of people. Well, yeah, and, Pinch and John is uh, um, Orange County MC, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, um, you know, he was much into the hip hop scene, but he was like, you're dope as a vocalist, you're dope as a singer, you're dope as a keyboard player, you know, you got a vibe. But now, who are you as an artist? What do you have to say? And how are you going to package that? And that's what that's what the Who the Funk album started to, to build is me creating this roadmap of what my next decade was going to look like in terms of output. And so far, you know, it's like we had all these uh, singles and albums and and collaborations and stuff that all came from that. But once I started saying like, make yourself into an artist because there's a lot of people that are musicians a right. lot of people that are great at their craft and i think we need that but there is a difference between a person who's good at their craft and a person that is an artist and has something to say because because i agree with it's you. like as a musician i know what i can hear but it's not about what i hear as an artist it's about what i can make you hear mm-hmm. and how you can see your story and my story and people only care about your story up until the point it converges with their story to give them some meat on the bone to take away for their own life, their own entertainment, their own enjoyment, or you, it pushes them to do something else. Do you feel that you've been um, more creative um, within the past year and within quarantine? Like things have been easier to create um, because I know it's been a lot of artists making a lot of music within the last year and it's just coming out you know um, do you feel that the quarantine kind of benefited you in that in that manner it did I mean I tell people all the time it's what happens in your downtime that's going to affect how far you come up and so the thing is everybody that learns to be able to prosper in a difficult time is because they planted seeds a while ago you know it's like mm-hmm. you don't you don't plant a seed today and harvest today so it was like the pandemic happened a year ago but everybody that was on their hustle and grind two years before everything started springing up during that difficult time because they planted at a time where it could be fertile now even though oh. this is a difficult time for other people but at the same time you have to do your personal best which ebbs and flows and changes so if all you can do is maintain, then that's your best. And, and no one's going to hold that against you. If you can do more than that, if you can move out of survival mode and start thriving, then that's even better. But not everybody can do that. Not everybody can 10X and go all cylinders all the time. And that's okay. Again, if all you can do is just getting out of bed is the most you could do, then, then you've done the, your best. But that's not going to be your best forever. It's like mm-hmm. where you start today is, is going to be something different. So even if you can't sit down and work on music with your team or whatever you can still do what you can do individually during that time until you guys can come back together because eventually the world's going to go around the cycle is going to cycle to something else Absolutely. and you're going to be able to to get back in the studio or do whatever you have to do i like that analogy a lot so is your writing process uh, more of a collaborative effort or do you um write alone and then you know kind of circle back or what what is your process when you're when you're creating yeah so in the beginning a lot of the stuff that i did i wrote alone but i only play keyboard and sing and i can synthesize stuff but when i'm working with a band i like to be able to send that to different people to hear how it's going to translate on guitar and bass and drums and things like that and i like to bring people a skeleton so i work on a lot of demos at home 
send that around to people, kind of get their feedback or bring them into when we were not in COVID into a band situation, like a rehearsal room where we can kind of jam stuff out and flesh it out, see how it goes. And then try some stuff in a smaller setting live to see how it does. We had a residency for the last couple of years at Heart Vales in Santa Monica. And so mm. I had my own night to curate however I wanted. And so we would test out a lot of different new things there. And, you know, the, the crowd, they love, they love whatever, as long as it's in that funk soul. R&B blues kind of vibe. Yeah, um, but um, yeah. So let lately, me know. Um, sorry to cut you off, but let me know when that comes back, and I'll definitely come out and, and support uh, on your night. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah we're sure. hope. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're hoping that we'll come back in the summer. We did. We did one virtual one last August, so that's up. Uh, that was up online with Veeps. We did a collaboration and did it at Heartvales. But um, yeah, we're hoping that live music comes back. We believe that good music. And, and live music will will prevail and uh, and people want to come out so you're gonna all the all the shows that were hard to pack two years ago are gonna be easy to pack now because everybody wants to come out as long as they are vaccinated or good to go we're gonna be flooded with more people than we can probably have capacity for once things really get moving soon but yeah I, I, I do a lot of the writing alone just me sitting at the keyboard I have a mark II fender Rhodes in my studio and so I'll sit there and pluck out stuff and usually come up with like a melody lyrics kind of like half a song verse chorus mm. just kind of get a vibe since uh but most of the music that i do now is kind of groove based so we just kind of get kind of a core a simple chord progression a groove or baseline or something and then we kind of build and iterate off of that but i think everybody has their their own process so lately you know, I like to collaborate with different people. I can find like a band that has a certain kind of sound or I just did a project that was with all beat makers for the first time. So oh, nice. I worked with I worked with a beat maker named Like who has produced and been nominated twice for Grammys for Kendrick Lamar. He's worked with Caliucci's and Anderson Pack and a bunch of people. And so um, I, every project I try to push myself into some uncomfortable situation where I'm doing something different because as an artist, you never want to, you know, it's like Michael Jackson, you don't want to make Thriller twice. When you make Thriller, that's your thing. And then you move <laughs> on the bad and then, and then remember the time and other stuff. And so this, this project called uh, W-A-J-A-K-F-S, uh, we're all just a kid from somewhere. Um, and mm. so I worked with all these different painters that created different artworks for the singles that came out. So you'll see, like I did a single, for in January that dropped called Sunday Morning and it's painted by an LA artist Noah Gottlieb and I met him through Instagram I saw his work in the cafe thought it was dope so he actually did two artworks for me that I commissioned so Sunday Morning is just like very like you know 5 6 a.m waking up the city is quiet it's all yours and you see the palm trees and it's just kind of like talking about moving into coming out of a hangover state into a sobriety like or a sobering up state. Mm -hmm. And then the, the next single that followed that in February was called I Was Here. And you see me in a mask because a mask because of COVID. And so I wanted to depict the timestamp of what we were going through. And I was here kind of contemplates it contemplates death and life, but really about leaving your legacy, which I think people need to think about more often than, than, we, than we do. And so, but also it's existential, like what happens when, when I go and, and, you know, 
things are going to be left behind. Things are going to be left undone. Things are going to be left unfinished. I need to like get that done. But at the end of the song, it ends with, but I'm, but I'm still here. Like I need to do something with the time that I have. I know my time is not infinite in this round, although I believe there are other rounds we could continue because mm-hmm. uh, it's not necessarily linear, but I think, you know, we all have the same 24 hours in the day, but I can guarantee less than 1% of people are actually maximizing it to the full potential because we're kind of taught somehow subliminally to, to hold back. Like someone's going to ask something about us, so we never give 100%. You never see yeah. someone running a marathon and at the end they just collapse. That's how the first marathon happened. The person ran 26 miles to get the message the person gave it to them and died. That's giving 100%, but you just don't see that now. So I think uh, and the last, uh, the album cover, I was doing a Tony Robbins comeback challenge in January, trying to get my mind right, because I feel like that is what allows artists, musicians, just anybody, business people that are trying to come up, it's really mindsets. And there's a Bible verse that says, like, you got to daily renew your mind. It's true. It's like there's so many negative forces, COVID, everybody yeah. was reading, like, different news articles and things that were coming out and getting this barrage of misinformation and and it's just, you know, sometimes you just got to unplug from that and, and get your mind to a place where you can create and, and build and, and dream. And so and um, keep, I met, and keep going, you know, that's the key. Keep going, you know. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And yeah. so I met this artist who's actually a Mexican muralist who did the artwork for the latest EP. And it was funny because, again, I didn't know her. We linked up through Instagram. I saw her in this Facebook challenge group. I said, your stuff's dope. Let's do something. Let's commission something. So we did. And then, uh, yeah, it was like, it had to go through customs to get the artwork. And, and then it got lost. And then it finally it got here. But but it was cool. Like the whole process of working with artists, like someone pen to paper, oil to canvas, mm-hmm. putting their spin of what they think you or your work represents when they hear your music. And uh yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah that visual, visual aspect. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was listening to your podcast, Deeper Grooves, and mm-hmm. um, I was pleased to hear the, the episode with Claude McKnight from Take Six and also Lonnie Marshall from Weapon of Choice. Weapon of Choice is one of my favorite bands, but I rarely hear people talking about them. You know, um, I started listening to them, I would say, around 94, 95. I was living on the East Coast back in Pennsylvania. Um, do you have a relationship with Lonnie or do you have you ever worked collaborate yes. with him or work? With yes. Him? Yes, we have. Lonnie used to run a funk jam uh, called Funky Friday uh-huh. uh, in, in Little Ethiopia. And so I used to come and sit in with him. And then right before the pandemic, we were actually going to headline. I was going to open for Weapon of Choice at the Mayfair Hotel and it got shut down. I think that was supposed to be last May. But uh, but yeah, Lonnie and I have known each other for a number of years in the L.A. Oh. funk scene and uh, and have bumped heads. And my cousin is a viola player and they were both in, I think, the hip hop group Daka together at the same time. And so, um, yeah, all the oh. all the like minded people kind of end up in the same circles. But yeah, Lonnie, Lonnie yeah. and I go way back. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, that Mayfair show would have been great. I've seen some cool stuff over there at the Mayfair. That's a nice hotel and it's up and coming and um, it's vintage too. They restored that, that actual space. And it's a great place to hear a DJ play or hear a band play and have some drinks or, or whatever. Did you ever play at the Temple Bar in Santa Monica before it closed? 
Yes, I played at Temple Bar with the Moon Crickets, my old band, because uh, mm. that was during the, the 2000s. So yeah, Temple Bar. I used to go see the DJs at Zanzibar, Little Temple, which now became the oh, Virgil. Yeah, Little Temple. Played over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those spots. Cool. Um, I, I was also pleased to hear that you were going to be playing some hiatus coyote on your radio show. Are you, are you familiar with the soul scene down in Melbourne and any of those other bands like 3070, Natalie Slade? Um, I'm a big hiatus coyote fan. So, uh, yeah. I mean, hiatus, hiatus is definitely one of the, the ones that I know the best. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of those groups I haven't heard, but you know, I was into the bamboos, which is also from Australia, a funk group. And, uh, oh. Okay. I, a lot of a lot of stuff from Australia. I was turned on through the UK, and there's a label called True Thoughts uh, that was pushed out by a California label, Ubiquity Records. So I got a lot of like underground funk in Australia and New Zealand from there. Oh, I know uh, you. But yeah, um, I know Ubiquity. They're from Northern California, right? San Francisco. They're from Northern California. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Definitely. so. Um, but yeah, hiatus. I found out about them because I'm a member of the, the Grammys and Neris and Recording Academy. And so when they were nominated their first year for the Grammys with their song Nakamura with Q-Tip, mm. uh, I kind of was listening through everything. It's like, this group is really dope. And then when their second album came out, I was just like, oh my God, this is like that. This Usually you have that second slump. Their album, I felt like elevated them, the, the second one, uh, Choose Your Weapon. Yes. And then... I agree with the you same, on that. I've, I felt the same way about the second uh, Alabama Shakes. I feel like oh, their second yeah. album, you could hear like, oh, y'all have money now. Because like this <laughs> album, like sonically, was just like so different. From and then the Britney's, Britney's the first uh, solo album is great too. Britney's solo album is awesome too. So, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I had, it was like, I had no idea how good a guitar player she was. And, mm-hmm. uh, and vocalist, I mean. Right. But uh, but yeah, I actually went down to Alabama in a town called Waverly. Uh-huh. Some people connected me. Uh, they saw a video of mine online and invited me to come to Alabama to play this town. The oh. town has town has 150 people. 50 people came to the show, so a third of the town came to the show. But the the guy who owns it, uh, he he used to do all the early Alabama shakes, like tour posters and T-shirts and stuff like that. So he had like all this memorabilia and stuff from them. And uh, it was cool to kind of see like the beginnings of them before they became like internationally renowned. And of course, Brittany Howard and her stuff. But yeah, the Jamie record was amazing too. I think, I think that's the beauty of it is that, again, it's like an artist, you continue to stretch like Taffy and continue to see like, where can I take this? Where can I take this? And you look at Prince. Prince was always pushing himself. Look at David Bowie. He was always pushing himself. Even David Bowie, like up to his death, released oh, yeah. a single the day he died. It was like he was... Well, that that last Bowie to... album is a great album. The last one he died. Well, he actually recorded that album while he was dying. <laughs> and it was a great album. But to go back to Alabama Shakes, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a guitar player back in Pittsburgh and I think that that group should be more noted, like people should know about them, like within the soul crowd, you know, I feel like their audience is more like a festival kind of Bonnaroo crowd, but right. I, um, I feel like they should be more appreciated in, in, in the soul, like they should be on Soul Train Awards or BET or anything, you know, I feel like the African-American crowd don't, they don't know about Alabama Shakes and mm-hmm. it's really unfortunate because they're not being exposed to everything that could uplift you musically you oh, know yeah. what i'm saying you know but and, there's a lot of things like that it's like yeah it's like because they're pushing to the rock genre 
and like people forget that rock came from black music absolutely and it just it's, and and other stuff like it's like you see deliverance and you see people playing banjo no one remembers that the banjo is an african instrument it just doesn't it's like things become so uh taken by other cultures that we forget that they stem from the african root and people yeah. should appreciate them and uh you know, so when you see someone like a Lindy Kravitz or Jimi Hendrix, that shouldn't be an oddity because Jimi Hendrix played with the Isley Brothers and the, yeah. and the Chitlin Circuit. That's how he became what he became. There you go. Know your history, man. So um, I volunteered at KCRW and KPFK. I, I saw that you did a project with Reggie from Wajata, the guy, um, the band leader from James Corden's band. How, what was that, that project like? Was it a... Uh, how did you guys get that together? You were in keyboards oh, and he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. Yeah, they just have a lot of these kind of social collaborations through different apps that allow you to kind of meet. It's the same as like now they have Clubhouse where it's like it creates a level playing field so different artists that may not know each other that are dope. Some are famous, some are not famous, can mm-hmm. work together. And so that was like one of those kind of collaborations that was happening with KCRW at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just did it purely through the app. I never met them, but it was cool to be able to to add like your flavor to whatever they were doing. And Reggie is obviously a genius and anyone that's seen his TED talk and the stuff he does uh, on the Late Show and stuff like that. I mean, he just continues yeah. to push the boundaries. Of course, Comedy Bang Bang as well. I mean, he's just uh, an anomaly. He's someone that's definitely comfortable in his own skin doing his own thing. Yeah, he does some interesting things with the vocals, kind of by me McFerrin type of thing. Very, very cool, man. So, so are you into any bands like Fishbone, um, Living Color, or Bad Brains? Do you have any of? Oh yeah, well of course, Bad Bad Brains, Bad Brains from DC, of course. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And then yeah, Fishbone. When I was with my Moon Crickets band, uh, they recorded. No, they rehearsed in our same lockout uh, in the two thousand. So we were like at one corner and they were like the other corner. So we saw them and, mm. and heard them playing all the time. And, and I mean, I remember them coming up around the same time as no doubt in the nineties. Oh and, yeah. And follow, definitely Following them. They were definitely in that ska scene. And a lot of people that I know are fishbone soldiers, um, you know, friends with Norwood and, Oh and, yeah. And that whole gang. I've sure. seen, I've seen them a lot of times over the years and not just in LA back, back home in Baltimore and DC and Pennsylvania. Um, Norwood's really cool. You know, I've, I've seen him in so many different types of variations. He has his other bands and then Angelo has his, you know, side projects. And then um, Dirty Walt has the year of the dragon and um, yeah, great band. And, um, it's interesting that you brought them, no doubt, because they're all from the same scene, you know, Jane's Addiction, Chili Peppers, but it seems like Fishbone didn't catapult into the stratosphere like Chili Peppers did. And like, you know, Gwen Stefani is like this huge figure, you know what I mean? But um, if you talk to any of those groups, they will all note Fishbone as being an influence, you know, hands down, you know. And um, I just think people should to talk more about Fishbone. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you know, Sky, Sky comes from reggae and and other stuff. Again, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know, black art forms are getting appropriated by other people, and obviously, Sublime was coming up around the same time too. Definitely. And it's just tough. It's tough sometimes where you can't. It's like, 
it's like I, I don't remember the the documentary but years ago there was a documentary that came out maybe 10 years ago where there was like another band there was like a black one oh it's like a band called death yeah Here's from detroit yes yeah yes, and it was detroit. like they, yeah. they were a good, like, good documentary yeah it is but mm. it's funny like we're we're black and there's motown but we're not motown so there was nowhere to go that's what happens with the fishbone where it's like oh you're dope but you're black if a white group did it they would blow up because true it's, it, it'd be like the police taking reggae or whatever but you can't take a reggae group like it like a ub40 you can have that because it crosses over because they're like and that makes it more palatable or commercial right 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 so what advice would you give to any up-and-coming artists um Secrets to keeping the uh, band together or becoming a, a, a good songwriter. What what tips would you give any up and coming artist? The secret to keeping a band together is difficult, but the main thing is like no egos. Anyone that thinks they're better than anybody else, it just deteriorates a band. And you have to be very good as a band leader of navigating the emotional roller coaster of like multiple people and everyone you add makes your ecosystem more complex. So like with me, I have like an eight, eight piece, nine piece, 10 piece band. So it becomes harder and harder. The more people you add to keep it together as is, but we do other smaller iterations. So what we can do from a solo duo trio quartet all the way up to 10. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, as a band of brothers, you have to be friends first you have mm-hmm. to really enjoy the music from a pure sense. I mean, if anybody is what I call like a paper chaser, if you're just in it to make money, like that's not that's not the business for you because no. it is very difficult to make money in it. But even if you do make money, it's not easy to sustain. And not everybody's going to write, you know, so the writers obviously get paid differently from their royalties than just the performers and the people that are producing are different. And so... I think that's the main thing for me. It's like I started out years ago. I was like, I want to be a great singer. And I was like, okay, and I also want to be, you know, pretty decent at keys. And then from there, I was like, oh, no, you also need to be a producer and an arranger and a background vocalist and a lead vocalist. And mm. you need to be a band leader. You need to create a label and a publishing company. Like there was like a lot of business stuff that you have to learn in the marketing of it. I think most of the stuff I do now is more of the marketing, like talking to my radio team and agents and other stuff and figuring out like what's, what's the next move and strategizing and planning that out. So I think it's not for the faint of heart and you need to be, you need to have uh, grit. You need to have that stickiness, stick to itiveness that mm-hmm. you can. That's why it's like, I think people that have that COVID, is, you know, it's not going to rock them to the core because they're used to dealing with the impossible. They're used to dealing with difficult situations mm-hmm. and the storms will come and go, but they're a rock in a sea of chaos. That's that's the mindset you have to have to be able to make a band last. And then as far as becoming a songwriter, you definitely need to know your craft. And Mm -hmm. to know your craft, you really need to understand the history and who's come before. Whenever I'm working with students and I have vocal students and we go over songwriting and production and other stuff, I, I try to show them dope songwriters. Like you look at Diane Warren. Diane Warren just was nominated for Oscar again. I mean, how many Oscars has she been nominated for? How many Grammys has she won? How many songs has she written since 
rhythm of the night or turn back time or because you love me or whatever, like, or unbreak my heart all the way up to the stuff for burlesque and the stuff now. It's like, you know, she sits at her piano eight hours a day and cranks out tunes and continues to still be relevant mm-hmm. many, many years to come. It's the same when you look at someone like a Tony Bennett, like they're 93, still making duet albums with Diana Cross, still and climbing out of stage. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So yeah. I was talking to my girlfriend last night. I was like, do it till you can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? That's what the motto is. You know, it doesn't matter how, how old you are, you know, do it till you can't do it anymore. Um, so what about like uh, international exposure? Have you toured o- overseas or in Europe? And what, what are the like differences between the USA and international crowds in your opinion? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've done a little bit abroad. Uh, I lived in France uh, at the end of the 2000s for six months. So I traveled around. Oh, oh wow. Uh, and th- yeah, for like six months. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I went to a writing camp a couple of years ago in China. So I got to see Asia and, and see how that was working with a nine girl group called Deer, um, mm. you know, doing some R&B stuff for them and nine part harmonies and stuff like that. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the crowds are different. We've just finished up our first European radio uh, campaign. So we have a, a radio agent there. And so we were getting a lot of plays in the UK, like BBC Six, Kirk Charles picked us up. And then uh, France, like really big stations in France and Germany were playing us. And so it's wow. interesting to see. I think, I think they respect American music. And it's like when you live in America, your accent is just your accent right like no one cares because you're american but when you go somewhere else now you're international so it's like mm-hmm. it's like well we hear a british accent and we're like oh that's nice or a french accent we're like oh that's that's nice on my ears pleasant because we don't hear it every day so i think sometimes you have to get out of your pond and uh, and see the rest of the world one it's going to shape and uh, expand your worldview so it gives you more things to write about and just absorb but also the audiences, especially in Europe, UK, France specifically, they love music and they are more appreciative of people who actually play instruments, mm-hmm. um, even though they like synthesized music, but they're into organic instruments, they're into bands, they're into they're into soul music specifically. I mean, they love yeah. American R&B, soul, pop music. They Yeah, there's, they this, uh, there's this group, Placebo, they're, I think they're from Belgium. And the album that I have is kind of like their take on American soul music. You know, it's you can tell it's Europeans playing it, but, uh, you know, they're, they're giving their best foot at, you know, trying to sound like Marvin Gaye or whoever, you know, but the music, the, the music in it is really, really cool. Then, you know, you got, you know, your, the UK soul scene, which has always been great, even yes. since, ever since the 80s, bands like Jamiroquai and stuff like that. Um, so the, the Black Moses track, what, what was the, the inspiration behind that? And does it have anything to do with like the civil unrest or anything that we've been experiencing lately um, as African-Americans? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, we released that right before the election. So end of October, going into the November of the election last year. And yeah, Black Moses, it was cataloging everything that we went through with the last administration, especially being people of color and taking that Curtis Mayfield vibe. I wanted to have like a very black exploitation vibe with it, but kind of explaining 
about history, about politics, um, and protest music. I mean, you know, it's like mm-hmm. we had songs like Keep Your Eyes on the Prize that, you know, Bob Seeker kind of tweaked in the 60s and 70s or 60s. And, uh, you know, Stevie and Marvin, they were all doing protest stuff. Billie Holiday, obviously, with this new movie, Protest Stuff, which was one of the first with Strange Fruit. Mm-hmm. But then you have people like Bob Dylan, you know, Blowing in the Wind. That's a protest song. But sometimes it's good to have other people saying it, but you need to be saying it, too. And so I felt mm-hmm. I felt with Black Moses taking a, a, a cue from Isaac Hayes' album, Black Moses, and also Harriet Tubman being called Black Moses, to be like, we need to free ourselves, free our minds, free our people, pave the way so that other people can follow in a good direction. Because a lot of us, especially as, as Black men, are trying to do well and trying to be positive role models in our community. And that doesn't come to light as much as it should. And right. And as a, if, as if, opposed if, to the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, and as long as we perpetuate stereotypes and media showcases us in certain lights, then that's all what I call the flyover states, middle America is going to see because they don't they don't have people of color necessarily in all their neighborhoods. So what they see on TV and what they're told is what they believe. And so Black Moses is really just trying to hold up that banner of freedom and saying, you know, it says like, if you don't stand up for truth then the world will continue to get evil. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And if you don't say something, then maybe nobody will say something. Cause there is this psychological phenomenon where it was like, they saw someone getting beat outside their apartment. And there was like hundreds of apartments in New York. And everyone thought, oh, I don't need to call the police because someone else has called the police. It's like, well, someone someone has to do something. You can't just assume unless you've confirmed that someone has done something that has been done. But there's just like this group, oh, someone will handle it. So then nobody does anything. And then some tragic thing happens, as we saw in life with many things that we continue to see. And so yeah, Black Moses was really just talking about that because I'm not the kind of person or artist that will just blast on social media like this is how I feel about this or rant because I like mm-hmm. to try to keep it positive and upbeat and music is kind of positive and an, an escape from the negativity already but sometimes you are so moved by what's happening but I feel I can express myself the best through song and, and so Black Moses was kind of a combination of what was happening at the time oh cool cool yeah I like that song a lot by the way it's really really one of the songs that hit me. Um, so I see that you performed at NAM. What, what do you think are the benefits of attending a convention like not NAM and um, down in Anaheim? And um, did you guys just play there once or you played there a few years in a row? Or? A few years in a row. Yeah, the first year we did a experience with Dine Audio and it got picked up by CNN and they had built these shipping containers that they made mobile large mobile recording studios like from europe they brought them over uh by cargo ship and then and so we were like one of the first bands to be able to record a full show in this kind of fishbowl <laughs> with people outside to record it live mm-hmm. uh and then we we turned that into the live and nam album that came out the following year and then and then this year or sorry last year the january 2020 before COVID. 
we uh, we worked with Jam in the Van. So Jam in the Van has done tons of great concert footage live with Marcus King and um, Gary Gary Clark Jr. and and tons mm. of people. And so we were super excited to to uh, connect with them on social media and be able to give it get a chance to perform three songs with them. And that got released um, later in the year, I think in May. But and and there's full color you know video content of the three songs we did in the full set as well. And so it was cool to be able to. I mean, Nam is like Guitar Center on steroids. It's like Guitar Center, Sam Mash, all the music places. A lot of checking gear, a lot of checking gear and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's it's not for everybody, but it's nice to be able to say I was there. I just like to be rubbing shoulders and elbows. I mean, it's like you're we step out of the booth recording and Stevie Wonder is just walking by casually, you know, so that's what Nam is. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you can't get to him because he's got a whole entourage, posse, bodyguards, but but other people, you can see their clinics and stuff, and I mean, you see some you see some pretty prolific, virtuosic, I mean, even the virtual one this year, I got I was able to hear a talk from Chick Corea, and then he passed away a couple of weeks later, so I was oh. glad to be able to see that content, but I think I, I mean, the, the marriage of art and commerce always exists. I mean, there's mm. they you need to be able to show people what the latest and greatest of what's coming out. I got my endorsement of Nord, so the red keyboard that I have, I'm endorsed through them through Nam. I oh. met them at, at Nam, so wow. um, so I think yeah, it's one of those places. If you're about business and making contacts and networking, and you want to see dope shows, and it's definitely something that I would suggest you do. And mm. and uh, and you got to get it through all angles because. I tried to perform at NAM, like the official NAM, and you know they were always busy with slots. But then like different stuff would come up, like other booths. They were like, "Hey, can you do something? Can you do something?" And then eventually, you get on a stage or you get in a recording booth or or some kind of uh, connection that you can do something or after party and things like that. So I think it's definitely worth uh, checking out if people haven't gone. And the winter NAM in uh, Anaheim is pretty big. Definitely, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I haven't been, but I know it's like a special invite. Maybe one year I'll, I'll get to go. Um, so I have a lot of musician friends, you know, and um, a lot of you know people over the years they make that transition from the East Coast to the West Coast, right? And uh, or others they might stay in their respective areas and gain like a large local following. Um, any advice for musicians that are considering that move to LA or New York uh, to make it in the industry? And do you feel that it's necessary to do that? That's a good question. I mean, when I moved out to LA, it was in 2003, and I felt like those are, I think you do need to be in some type of metropolitan area, and I think you do need to be probably in one of the music hubs. Now, LA and New York are big ones. There's also Philly. There's also Austin. Nashville. 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 Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Atlanta. there's, There's places, but I think, yeah, if you're I mean, I don't know. I mean, Prince came from Minneapolis. So I think I, I think it's possible. It's possible. But I would say if you want to play in a band, live music, Austin is definitely a place to go. That would be my second choice after L.A. But L.A. has a great, not just music scene, but all the businesses. If you want to get into like film stuff, film scoring, soundtracks, licensing, there, there's a lot of great market for that. And then just the weather, I think it's conducive to people to create because I could not stand the cold in Boston or DC. And so I won't be going back to the East Coast anytime soon. 
And the thing is, you know, our festival season starts so early. It's just like, we just get it, you know, and it's so good. And that's part of the reason why I'm still here. So, yeah, so this is like my final question here. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate like the mesh between jazz and hip hop, you know, groups like Tribe Called Quest, Diggable Planets and Gurus, Jazz Mataz. Um, do you think that aesthetic is missing from the current generation, like of like musicians and groups? I mean, I mean, we got we have our new generation of jazz, like Robert Glasper, Kamasi Washington, Terrence Martin, you know. And um, there is a group that you interviewed on your podcast that's like kind of a new group that does hip hop and jazz. But yes. do you do you feel like that's kind of missing, as opposed missing? to the nineties when it was like. More- uh more more hip-hop and jazz collabs and samples and things like that i mean i would definitely love to hear more of it but i'm glad there are new people i mean i'm a huge robert glasper fan i saw him before the grammys play at um was it the mint uh, the pre-grammy show at the mint the mint yes yeah, i was at that show so yeah good. But there were so several good. shows, so I'm sure you. Yeah, were I was, I was at the midnight. <laughs> yeah, I, it was like, and they were all sold out. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was at the mid. I was at I was at the midnight because I had a show earlier that day, so that was like the only time we could go. But mm-hmm. and dog dog tired, but just ridiculous. And and so when you look at someone like Glasper and you look at what he did and Terrace Martin and that group uh, for Kendrick Lamar, Kendrick Lamar, Pimper Butterfly, is a jazz album. I mean. It's a jazz album. It's a jazz hip hop oh, album, yeah. but it's really a jazz album. And so I think there are people that are trying to push the envelope. And, and there are people that they talk about like a Miles Davis. And they say like if Miles Davis was alive, he'd be a hip hop artist. He'd be a rapper. Because it's true. Those mm. people, they never classified themselves as, as jazz. And I mean, I think even if you look at someone like prolific, like a Herbie Hancock. Like Herbie Hancock and what he did going from bop and miles davis jazz to the 70s fusion headhunters jazz to the so, 80s rocket right it's like yeah i mean <laughs> I, I think and yeah. beyond i mean in the 2000s he's the only best album grammy winner for jazz mm-hmm. in like the early 2000s so so it's like i i think i think he would even dive into hip-hop you know i think they're constantly because jazz and hip hop, when you're just freestyling, it's all improv, which so jazz direct, is known for. That's yeah, direct lineage. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But what yeah. I love people to start taking more of those beats and and jazz and putting that into modern hip hop. Yeah, I would definitely love that. I think mm. I mean I tribe was a as amazing at it. Yeah, I interviewed on the podcast, Jack Wilkins, the very first episode in Tribe, uh, they sampled, they sampled uh, his guitar work for, uh, for Second Nigga, and uh, it was great because this guy probably never thought thirty years later this this song was going to be sampled. He probably didn't mm. think people were going to be listening to it thirty years from then. So, I think that's the beauty of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you hear that when you hear the breakbeats of like. Uh, Biggie Hypnotize is a Herb Alpert breakbeat. It's Absolutely. ridiculous how yeah. good that song is. I mean, and Herb Alpert is like, you know, he started AM Records and, you know, all the stuff he did with Jan Jackson and, and, and Carpenters and tons of people. But it's like also he's the only artist that had uh, a number one instrumental with Rise and a number one vocal with 
this guy's in love with you, Burt Bacharach or whatever. So it's like there's somebody who has that knowledge that's that's breaking records and digging through crates. And Absolutely. you see that with, you see that with DJs like Questlove, obviously uh, yeah. on the on the Oscars. It's like you know he'll play a hip hop song and then all of a sudden he'll flip to Dolly Parton nine to five, and it all yeah. works. The thing so is I about think- the thing is about Questlove is that. Any music documentary that I see or any period piece documentary, whether it's the 70s or whatever, he's there giving his commentary. He's the folk, he's a, a pinpoint or a focal point when it comes to music documentaries or um, culture documentaries. And him being on the Oscars last night or two nights ago, I mean, that was like a big step for him, I believe. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And this movie coming out, this documentary that he's doing with all this footage, that was done by black artists around the same oh, yeah. time as Woodstock and never came out. This is going to be ridiculous that this footage has been sat on for so long and nobody's seen it. I heard about that, but when I saw the previews for that, I thought they were talking about Watt Stacks, but they're not talking about Watt Stacks. Mm-hmm. It's, this is a total, totally different festival. Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it for sure. He has also a masterclass now that teaches like DJing and music curation and stuff. But I mean, I've always liked him and the roots and thought they were dope. And I was super excited when they got onto the late night and, yeah. you know, got some more notoriety from that. But I mean, I, his, his, uh, his approach to music, I mean, you see his tiny jazz with the full brass band and stuff. And then, I don't know. And then he did that Keith, that Keith uh, challenge on Spotify where he had that whole playlist of just amazing funk songs. I think as like a music history to educate people on the genre, I think he's he's thinking about it in a very globally minded way for sure. Absolutely. Well, look, man, it was great talking with you and um, I appreciate your time and um, we definitely should connect behind the scenes and good luck with the radio show and the bands and and everything. And I I appreciate um, your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, feel free to connect anytime. I look forward to learning more about what you're doing and uh, keeping you informed of what's happening over here. Definitely. You have a good night, sir. Thank you. You too. Take care. All All right. Bye. Peace.